0: Lifeway. Lifeway. Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. Well, hello and welcome to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Vernoy, here as always with my co host, Todd Atkins. Todd, how are you doing
1: today? I'm doing great, there you go.
0: Well, today we are excited to talk with Michael Hyatt, who is an author, blogger, speaker, and the former chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers. He has written many books, probably many of which that you have read, including his latest, win at work and succeed at life. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chandler. Good to see you. Good to see you, Todd. Well, we were just talking about internet and working from home, so we are glad that we were able to to make this interview happen. And I know for many of our listeners, they're, they're trying to figure out the remote work life as well. So we are doing this um, all remotely, which is fun. We wish we could be together, but glad that we can talk today, Michael. Yeah, me too. Well, just as we were talking about, you do have your new book, Win at Work and Succeed at Life. And I know that you were able to to write that with actually your daughter, Megan. And can you just give us a little bit of a breakdown of, of what led you to write that book and kind of how that came to be?
2: Well, it's kind of become our life work, this whole idea of what we call in the book, the double win, where you're winning at work and succeeding at life. So, We maintain and advocate for the fact that it's possible, despite claims to the contrary, to achieve work-life balance. To not have to sacrifice your organizational or company or church-oriented goals, whatever your professional goals are. But at the same time, not at the expense of your personal health or your most important relationships. So where this started for me, Chandler, was about 20 years ago. When I went to work at Thomas Nelson Publishers, um, largest Bible publisher in the company, largest faith-based publisher in the world. And so I was given responsibility for one of Thomas Nelson's then 14 book publishing divisions. So I was a general manager. I discovered soon after I took the job that this division was dead last in every important financial metric. It was not growing at all. In fact, it was shrinking in size. It had lost money the previous year. And the CEO wanted to know how long it was going to take to turn this division around. And so I kind of pulled a number out of the air and I said, I think it's going to take about three years. And he said, well, it's kind of what I was thinking. Have at it. So I rolled up my sleeves, got my team all on board. Everybody got excited about turning this division around. And I kind of painted a vision for what, what could happen. And we really worked hard. You know, we sacrificed, you know, evenings, weekends, vacations, You know, we were working, it felt like night and day, it wasn't, but we were working a lot. So I I was so excited because after 18 months, we had gone from number 14 to number one. We were the fastest growing division in the company. We were the most profitable division in the company. And I got the biggest bonus check that I'd ever gotten in my life. So I was super excited. I just, I thought, naturally my wife's gonna be excited about this. So I I couldn't wait to get home and tell her about it. When I got home, I kind of bounced through the back door and I said, hey, honey, check this check out. And I hold, held the check up and I, I said, what do you think? And she was just a little less than her usual enthusiastic self. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, we need to talk. And I thought, uh oh, so we walked into the den. We sat down and her tears, her eyes began to fill with tears. And she said, look, you know, I love you. And I'm so grateful for all that you do for our family. But I'm going to be honest with you. You're ne- never home. And I knew she was right. And she said, You know, even when you are home, you're not really here. And I knew that was right because I was pretty distract- distracted with my devices when I was at home. And she said, Your girls, and we have five daughters, she said, Your girls need you now more than ever. And then she began to cry. And she said, Honestly, I feel like a single mom. And so that was for me like a gut kick because I thought, I had reached the pinnacle of success, but what I discovered was that it was a false summit. I was winning at work, but I was losing at home. That wasn't a good feeling. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I know, I know that that is something that you had to wrestle with. And there's many listening who as pastors and church leaders, they're, they're working uh, hours, you know, beyond 40 hours, weeks. And for with ministry, oftentimes it's hard to shut it off. It's not Exactly a nine to five job. You know, you can get a call at any time. Somebody could could need some counseling. You get a phone call that that takes up your your evenings or even your weekend. And it's easy for, just as you were talking about, work to bleed into the off hours and that work life balance is is tough to, to navigate. So you talk about in the book the cult of overwork and how so many are, you know, kind of, I would almost worshiping at the cult of overwork. And why would you say that? overwork overworking is such a problem nowadays and especially within the church. What would
2: you say to that? Yeah. You know, there's an extra layer on it in the church for sure. But I think first of all, just in general, forget pastors for a moment and forget the church, but just all of us in general, you know, I think that work is highly esteemed in our culture. It's where we derive our sense of meaning, a sense of significance. We feel like we're doing work that matters. And frankly, when we're doing work, we love, it's fun, you know, and we get a measurable sense of progress at work and, and we know from all the research on happiness that that's the essential ingredient in happiness is that when you can feel like you're making progress against a measurable goal, that results in happiness. You know, we, we have a sense of progress. We, we, get, we get rewards at work. We get atta boys" and atta girls" and slaps on the back and you know, all kinds of encouragement. But when we go home, it's a lot different. You know, there's not the same tangible sense of progress, particularly if you're raising kids. You know, sometimes it's three steps forward. Sometimes it's two steps back. Sometimes it's three or four steps back. But you don't have the sense of progress. It's not measurable. You don't have the rewards. And frankly, relationships are messy. You know, it's, it's not always fun. Now, I can tell you, I've been married for almost 40, 43 years now. I've got five daughters, grown daughters. I've got nine grandkids. Totally worth it in the end. You know, all my kids, my grandkids live within about two miles of me, which is fantastic. But I mean, there were times when, when the kids were small and we're trying to navigate through all that, that it felt, you know, impossible. And it felt like, you know, it was much easier for me to, to come up with an excuse. I didn't, wasn't consciously doing it, but I would come up with a lot of excuses why I needed to be at work because that was the one place where I kind of knew where I was, what I was doing and where I was getting rewards and, you know, acclaim and, all that sense of progress. Now, just one last thing, I, I, I'll, I'll say for, in the church, it's 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 even worse because we have layered onto it, this sense of duty to God and, you know, obligation to God's people and serving God's people. And, you know, all that gets kind of mixed up. And so a lot of pastors get confused, you know, does ministry come ahead of their health or their family life? Maybe they should sacrifice it all, you know, mm-hmm. for the sake of serving other people, for serving God. And I just think that is bad theology and doesn't work out in practice. You know, I've seen too many, too many pastors lose their families, lose their, lose their kids, lose their health, burn out, leave the ministry. I mean, it's very common. I think anybody can find
1: their identity in their work. Um, but I think when you, you know, when, you, when you're a pastor and you feel called to ministry, it's like, oh, well, this is a, this is a higher level of identity at the same time, I love what you said about, um, you know, clarity around wins at, at work. Like I know what I'm doing here. I was trained to do this yet. We find our identity there. I think often because it's clear than our identity as a dad, because we almost feel like anybody can be a dad, but I'm called right. to be a pastor. Can you speak to the importance of understanding the
2: balance in that one. Yeah. Well, you know, the subtitle of the book is five principles for overcoming the cult of overwork. And that's how, that's how I look at it. It's a cult, you know, it's like a religious cult that we can fall prey to if we're, we're not careful. And I think that, you know, we have to understand, and one of the principles we talk about is that life is multidimensional. You know, you can't win in just one domain of of life and sacrifice the other domains and ultimately be successful because they're all interrelated. So that, for example, if I have a health crisis, that's going to back up into my work. That's going to make me less effective, maybe render me completely on the sidelines at work. On the other hand, if I'm experiencing significant stress at work, that's going to back up into my health. It could back up into my marriage or my relationship with my kids. Or you got a problem with one of your kids. Kid, kid goes off the rails. And now all of a sudden at work, you're distracted because all you can think about is what am I going to do with this kid? And so these things are all interrelated. So they, they do work best when they're in some sense of balance, but we have to be careful about how we define balance because it doesn't mean that we give equal attention to every domain of life. What it means is that we give appropriate attention every domain of life. So this morning, I worked out for 45 minutes at the gym. That's an appropriate amount of time to give on my, you know, physical well-being. I don't have to be there like I'm at work, you know, six to eight hours a day, but it's an appropriate level. But I tend to it because how I move, how I exercise, nutrition, all that has an impact on how I show up as the best version of me or not. Mm.
1: Why do you think the 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 cult of overwork is so prevalent? I mean, in and out of COVID,
2: I mean. Yeah, again, I just, I, I think it's fun. You know, I mean, I meet people all the time, particularly in the business world where I do most of my work, where when I talk to them about hobbies, they say, oh, you know, work is my hobby. I love my work. It's it's fun. It's what I do for, you know, enjoyment. And they can't get enough of it. They're thinking about it. They're reading about it. They're listening to podcasts about it. They're They're doing it 24 seven. And I think it's just very alluring because of that. And again, because it's a little bit more easy to get our our you know arms around. Uh, it's easier to have clarity in that realm of life that some of these other areas go neglected because when we when we're at home, maybe we don't know what we're doing, we we neglect those areas that make us feel uncomfortable. And you know, same thing with our our health. you know i I, I can think back, you know for years, I would never go in for an annual checkup at the dentist. And my wife would, you know, beg me to do it. I'd say, well, you know, once I've been flossing for about six weeks, then I'll go in. You know, I just, I just felt un, uncomfortable with that or, or getting the annual medical checkup. You know, when I get myself in shape, then I'll do it. No, it's, it's really something you got to attend to, you know, all of these things, because if you don't, you drift out of control. Hmm. And that's how people approach a lot of their life. They're just kind of drifting through life. They're not taking care of themselves physically, for example, and then they, you know, wake up and find themselves way out of shape with maybe some kind of chronic health condition that is backing up into the rest of their life. Or the same thing with marriage. You know, it's not like you just wake up and suddenly your wife leaves or your husband leaves. These these problems are typically years in the making, but we keep just, you know, incrementally uh, turning a deaf ear, turning a blind eye to those things and focus on the thing where we feel like we have more control, which is work.
0: I just think of when you were talking about that, when you talked about going to the dentist and you've neglected it, I know I do that in my life. Then they ask you, they're like, have you been flossing? And you're kind of like, ah, a little bit. And then it just, you know, it starts bleeding out of your gums and you're just like, okay, well maybe I haven't. And what (laughs) you were talking about there is, is the neglect of family or marriage or even just our personal, uh, you know, relationship with the Lord. That's going to, that's going to be revealed at some point. It's going to catch up with us. And that's just a great reminder to, to always be focusing on those things so that when it does get revealed, it is healthy. It's not, you know, it's not going to land you in some hopefully um, some moral failure or even just, you know, burnout, whatever that may be. So now, as we're talking about that, we want to make sure that we are protecting ourselves along those lines. And I know that in the past you've written on this and also in this book as well, but you talk about constraints and boundaries to make sure that we are protecting ourselves. We are, emotionally healthy, we are spiritually healthy. And and when we're making sure that we're not overworking as well, putting those things in the right balance. So what for pastors listening, maybe they're sitting there here and they're like, man, you have just, you've checked all the boxes for me. I am in the cult of overwork. Well, how can they create boundaries and constraints to help them become more healthy in this area?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, if we go back to my story, when I was way out of control and where, You know, I had a very unhappy, disappointed wife. And as a result, I felt like I was failing. You know, the first thing I did was I hired an executive coach. And it happened to be Daniel Harkavy, who wrote with me uh, the book Living Forward, which is all about life planning. And one of the first things Daniel, to me, in one of our first sessions together, he said, it just feels like you don't have any boundaries. And he said, tell me if this is right or if this is wrong. But he said, my guess is that in the afternoon when when it suddenly dawns on you that you're not going to finish your task list. That you say to yourself, that's okay. You know, I'm not going to finish by the time I I leave the office, but that's okay because I can eat a, a quick bite with the family, and then I can crack open my laptop and continue working. Or it gets to the end of the week, and you you think, okay, I'm not going to finish all the tasks I needed to get done by the end of this week, but no problem. I'll just I'll just do it on Saturday morning, or I'll do it Sunday evening, or I'll do it some other time. And and you, he said, you're probably the kind of person. And he said, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're probably the kind of person that that when you go on a vacation, you get up a couple hours before the family gets up so you can work on email and do some special projects that you haven't been able to get done at work. And I said, that is exactly me to a T. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to establish some hard boundaries. When are you gonna finish work by the end of the day? And what about weekends and vacations? And I said, okay, well, I'm willing to commit to quitting at 6 PM and not working in the evenings and I won't work on the weekends and I won't work on vacation. And he said, okay, great. He said, that's a good start. He said, I'm sure, sh- I'm sure then since you've made that commitment, you won't mind if I check in periodically with your wife, Gail, I'm just going to give her a call and ask her how you're doing. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> now <laughs> all of a sudden it got real because I knew that Gail would be honest with him. And I knew that he was going to get the truth too. Cause I, you know, I couldn't spin it. He was going to find out exactly whether I was keeping those boundaries, but then kind of a, uh, an amazing thing happened. So then in the middle of the afternoon, when I realized that I, I might not finish my task list, instead of getting sidetracked, I would roll up my sleeves and really get focused. And I would get it done by 6 PM because I didn't have any safety valve. I didn't have any, you know, way to do this, this work in the evening or do it on the weekends. So I was more focused and way more productive. And so that's something I've, I've done now for like 20 years, you know, and then obviously there are seasons when that doesn't work, you know, when you just have to kind of go out of, out of balance. But, and we can talk about that more if if you want, but in general, that's my, that's has been my, you know, I've had a hard boundary of when I quit. Now, if you go back to when COVID started, this, this got really interesting for the team because we've been really emphatic with our team because we believe in you know winning at work and succeeding at life, the double win. And so we've said to all of our executives, all of our leaders, we don't want you emailing staff after hours or on weekends or during their vacations. But during COVID, we discovered that we had a lot of young parents who suddenly had no uh, childcare and the kids were underfoot and there was a lot of stress in the environment. So we said, what if as an experiment, we go from an eight hour workday to a six hour work day. And let's just try it for two weeks and see if we can maintain our level of productivity. After two weeks, we checked back in with the executive team and we said, how's it going? Everybody said, man, I can't tell any difference. Everybody seems hyper-focused, very productive. So we went back to our team and we said, hey, great news, this seems to be working. So we're gonna roll out the experiment a little, little longer. And so we ended up going through the summer, no loss of productivity whatsoever. And so then in our strategic planning session in September, the executive team got together and said, look, we're on a trajectory to double our profit over last year. And we've been working 30 hours a week. So yeah, we're gonna make this a permanent feature, a permanent benefit of Michael Hyde & Company. So still to this day, and it's a permanent benefit, we work 30 hours a week. We didn't dock anybody's pay. Everybody gets paid the same amount, but we've been uber productive. So it's, it's counterintuitive but it's really the key to being able to give attention to those other areas of your life.
1: So there are some leaders that are listening to this that have, uh, that have, you know, different roles within an organization. Um, the higher, in my opinion, the higher level you go in leaderships, the fewer decisions that you should be making, but the more complex those decisions are, um, the higher level that you go in leadership, uh, the, I, I think the more difficult it is to kind of put some of those boundaries in place. I mean, because it's not, uh, my role is not task driven. It is, is, is more leadership strategy, you know, dealing with some difficult things. Um, how do you continue to add boundaries as you, um, go up to that level of leadership or is it just, done differently where it's like, well, no, I'm still going to do these things. Um, I'm still going to make sure I'm spending time with my family. I'm still going to make sure I'm, you know, doing these things. It's just not in a typical workday because, you know, like my job is not locked from nine to five and, and I'm going to, you know, Mm -hmm. go do this in the middle of the day or spend time with my kids here. Or how does that, how does that manifest itself? the higher level you go in leadership and the more complex it becomes.
2: Well, I think that, that we try to make this more complex than it needs to be. And I I get that, you know, pastors have, you know, a different role, just like a, you know, like an ER doctor would have different constraints than I might have in my life. My life is pretty regular from day to day, but this doesn't mean that we have to throw out the idea of constraints or boundaries. And and if we're not careful, what we do is we end up in a situation where we're helping everybody else, but we're not helping ourselves. We're not engaging in an appropriate level of self-care. And I really believe that self-care is a spiritual discipline. And so that if, if, for example, the easiest way to do it is if you can put boundaries on your work week, you know, and I know pastors, you know, I certainly consider Sunday a work day. But, you know, there's got to be another day, you know, to compensate for that when you're just going to be off, you're going to be unplugged. And I have four rules, you know, for, my, for myself, Todd. I just say I'm not going to read anything about work. I'm not going to think about work. I'm not going to listen to anything about work like podcasts. And I'm not going to do any work. So those are kind of my, you know, my four non-negotiable rules. But here's the key to it you got to proactively find other things that you're going to do. you got to schedule that time to go work out. You've got to schedule that time to be with your family. you got to schedule that time for a hobby. And, <laughs> you know, we make the case in the book. I mean, hobbies are an incredible way to reduce stress and to increase your productivity and your, and your creativity especially. But it makes you a more interesting person when you go back to work. So, so I would be just really reticent. and and I would just say this to everybody listening to this, be really reticent about thinking you're the exception to the rule, because I think that what happens, and I did this for years, I lied to myself and I lied to my family, you know, because I would say to them, Hey, look, once I get acclimated to this position, then I'll get back into balance and I'll give you and the girls the time and attention you deserve. And then I'd have say, you know, somebody on my team would resign. And I'd say, well, just as soon as I can get this position filled, because right now I'm doing two two jobs. Mm-hmm. Once I get that position filled, then I'll snap back into balance. But the problem was one temporary situation bled into another temporary situation, into another temporary situation. And before long it was permanent and it'd become a lifestyle.
1: I can remember a conversation with my wife, similar to, I think, uh, what you described with yours, where, um, I don't remember what campus number it was, but um, I was the XP at a a larger church in D.C. and we did nine campuses in four and a half years. And I was just like, well, you know, June. June, it will be different because we have one more little experiment we're doing uh, and we're going to do a micro campus on on Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, after we get that done, which, by the way, was Michael Kelsey's campus uh, Chandler. Um, but, uh, I was like, you know, just one more and then, you know, we'll like get into a regular rhythm. And she said, um, I've been married to you for 10 years and please don't ever say that again until you are serious. I don't want to have this conversation because we've had this conversation before. You don't remember them. Uh, they're not as big of a deal to you. Um, you know that kind of a thing. She was, I'm being nice to myself here, but it's true. It's true, Michael. And we all want to think that we're the exception to the rule. And even now today, I still struggle with these things. Chandler knows that if I'm on vacation, I, I am that guy. I, I cannot turn stuff off. I read leadership books on vacation. Yeah. Uh, And I tell myself it's because I don't like the beach, which is very true. Um, I'm the guy that takes like a real shovel to the beach because I need either manual labor or this. I just can't sit. I'm not that guy. But um, long story short, I think as I was listening to you, I I thought, you know what, until I can check off the box that I'm doing excellent in all the spheres, I cannot give the excuse of, oh, I'm the exception uh, because it it's, it, it's not true. It's just not true. You're not the exception unless you can tick all the boxes that you're doing all these other things well.
2: I'm telling you that that inner dialogue of thinking you're the exception is what gets a lot of pastors in trouble. That's why they get into moral failure, because they think they're an exception. You know, that God makes a special allowance for them. God understands. And you're right. You're not the exception. And I'll tell you what's, what's so at stake, uh, Todd and Chandler, is the fact that as a pastor, you're essentially saying to the people that you're leading, like, like the Apostle Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, that law of replication is wo- woven into the fabric of how God has made reality. People are going to replicate themselves. Leaders are going to replicate themselves in the lives of their followers, whether it's the bad qualities or the good qualities. You know, it's just the law of replication. When I was, when I was growing up, I remember my, my mom coming to me when I was about four years old and said, Michael, why are you limping? Well, here's the deal. My dad got hurt in the Korean war. He had, took shrapnel to the head. He was in a coma for six months. He had this severe neurological damage that has caused him, even to this day, he's 87 years old. He has a severe limp. He's never walked normal since he was 17 years old. He listed the Marines when he was 17, if you could imagine, and got hit with, with shrapnel when he was 17. But I was just unconsciously imitating my father. And so if you're standing in the pulpit and telling people that they need to love their wives or love their husbands or love their kids or take care of their health and you're not doing it, your actions are going to speak louder than your words. You, you will cause, irre, what's the word? Un, unbelievable damage in the lives of the people that are following you because they'll seek to do what you're doing. And maybe you have the stamina to do it. You know, maybe you have the horsepower to do it, but not everybody does. And so I think, I think for the sake of the people that follow us, you know, we've got to be all in on trying to model what God would have us to be. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Uh, that is such an important truth right there that so many people it's not just what we say it's what we do and they're following what we do and the modeling of it. So thank you man what a what an incredible story. I mean thank thank you for sharing about your your dad. That's a I mean 17. I mean that's that's incredible. That's yeah. No matter how many people you have on staff at your church, there's only so much you can accomplish in a day, right? Your church exists to serve your community. So the mission of your church and its staff is to reach as many people as you can. That's why productivity is essential for churches. As most of your church's success lies in its ability to lean into and leverage resources for optimum performance. And thankfully, our friends at Belay know this well. Belay is an innovative staffing solution with over 10 years of experience serving churches, and they have successfully matched thousands of organizations with part-time virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists. That's why they're offering our listeners a free download of their resource, Church Leaders, Essential Strategies to Unleash Productivity. Let Belay help your church live its mission in your community by helping you juggle less and accomplish more. Just go to Belay, that's B E L A Y solutions.com/lifeway for your free download. Well, let's let's kind of switch gears here. We've talking to, been talking a lot about overwork and how to create boundaries, but let's let's kind of jump back into your, your personal leadership and, and staying sharp. So what habits or practices do you focus on so you can continue to learn as a leader? Of course, you're a lot of people that are listening, know you for the content that you share the blogs, the books. So in order for that to happen, you have to be in, in taking a lot. So what are the habits or practices that you have created in your life?
2: Well, l- long before it was popular, um, I, I got very serious about establishing a clear morning ritual. And so literally since college, you know, I, I've started every morning and I'm 65 years old now. So this has been four decades. You know, I start every morning uh, by reading the Bible uh, for as long as I can remember. I've read through the one year Bible. And before there was a one year Bible, you know, there was a, a one year Bible reading plan. So I'd read through the Bible every year. So I start that, that takes 15 minutes. Then I pray. And for me, that takes about 20 to 25 minutes. And then I journal, that's about 15 minutes. And um, I've kind of had an in and out relationship with just meditation, you know, just thinking about the scripture or just trying to be quiet. And so I'm kind of back on that now. So I've been doing that now for a couple of weeks. And then, and that's usually a, a 15 to 20 minute exercise. And then I hit the gym. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a gym in my house. So I, I work out for 45 minutes to an hour. It's during that time that I'm also feeding my brain. So I'm always listening to audiobooks or podcasts or getting some kind of input. And then usually before I go to work, then I'll, then I'll write for about an hour. So I consider all that gets done by 9 o'clock in the morning. And then I, then I start my workday. But I can pretty much predict what's going to happen based on how well I do that in the morning. Mm. And, you know, it's pretty much, it's it's really hard for me to not do that. Even on vacation, I I pretty much keep the same routine. But I think that's that's the key is a habit is always better than a goal. You know, a system is always better than a goal. You know, if you can, if you can add these habits and bake them into your life and just incrementally be exposed to new content, be exposed to new leadership, whatever it is, you know, you'll grow in that kind of environment. It's just like watering a plant every day. It doesn't take anything dramatic or big. It's just continuously watering the plant day after day.
1: So I want to know what's the best piece of leadership advice that you feel like you've ever been given and what effect has it had on your life?
2: Well, I think the best leadership advice I ever got was just that I need to learn to delegate. And if it were that easy you know, right? Because I was one of these guys that had sentences in my head, like, you know, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. Or it takes longer to explain how to do it. I might as well just do it myself. So true story, right out of college, I went to work for Word Publishing, which was in Waco, Texas. I went to Baylor University. And so I went to to work at Word. Um, I was a marketing director there. They gave me an executive assistant whom I never used because I didn't know how to delegate. She, she, I remember her coming to me one day and saying, she said, I don't know how to tell you this, and it's probably not good for my career, but I'm like bored out of my mind. She said, there's so much stuff that you're doing that I could do if you would just delegate it to me. And so that kind of sent me on a quest of learning how to delegate. And I think, I, you know, I'm sure I've got some areas to learn in, but I am really, really good at delegation. And I think that, that what that does is that when you learn to do that, First of all, it frees you up to focus on those high leverage activities that only you can do. So to this day, you know, I I really focus on one of three kinds of activities. Either I'm creating vision for the company, I'm creating content, or I'm delivering content. If it's not one of those three things, you know, it's somebody else's purview. And so I delegate it out. But, uh, but not only does it allow me to focus on the highest leverage activities, but the other thing about delegation, nothing builds your team like delegation, you know, helping them level up their game, becoming more proficient, more passionate about what they do. But delegation makes all that possible.
1: I can remember, um, oh, it's been forever ago, uh, uh, um, but I can remember, uh, I think it was the very first Catalyst. I heard Doc talking about three levels of shared ministry: dumping, delegating, and developing. And what you've described is that you know we all been told for years and years that you know delegation is is the highest form of 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 leadership. Uh, but not the highest form, but that is what you do as a leader. It's all about delegation. What you have described, though, is an intentional shift, and the, the intentional shift from Uh, delegation to development um, or delegation as development. Can you break that down just a little bit?
2: Yeah. You know, when I give um, some job to my assistant or one of the executives on my staff that they haven't done before, then it stretches them. It pulls them out of their discomfort zone. And I know the secret to growth is constantly putting yourself in the discomfort zone, once you start getting comfortable, you start sliding backwards, you start regressing. There's no uh, static state when it comes to leadership, or personal development. You're either growing or you're regressing. And so what that means is that as leaders, we have to deliberately put ourselves in places that make us uncomfortable. And it means that we have to give opportunity for our people to be in places where they're not so, not so comfortable either, which means we have to be patient you know, with people. Um, we can't expect people to read our minds. And one of the biggest reasons delegations fail is because leaders get back you know, something that doesn't meet their expectations. But the problem was they expected their delegate to read their mind. They were never explicit with what they expected. So we have a tool in our coaching program. It's called the Project Vision Caster. And it basically, I mean, anybody can do this. You don't have to have our form to do it. But it's basically take 15 minutes as, as the leader and write down the delegation and describe, first of all, what it is you want done. I mean, if you can't describe that clearly in, in a paragraph, you're not clear enough to delegate. Then put why, why is this important? And what is it going to make possible? And then finally, this is the most important part. Fast forward to the completed project and describe it in bullet points, but with as much detail as you can. So you're defining the win in advance so that now your delegate doesn't have to read your mind. They can see what you put, you know, in this delegation sheet, whatever you want to call it. And, and they can see. And so now we have shared understanding of what the expectation is. We have a shared definition of what the win looks like. So that, that like vastly increases your chances of a successful delegation. And it leads to development for the person you're delegating to. Hmm.
0: Michael, one last question here. I know that you said um, that you are now 65. You You've had, you've written a lot. You have spoken a lot. You have poured into so many people's lives when it comes to leadership, productivity, and just even personal personal uh, growth and leadership as well. But
2: what would you want, what do you want your leadership legacy to be? Wow. Believe it or not, I've never been asked that question. I, yeah. I think, you know, if there's, the, if there's a fundamental message to everything that I do, um, it's this, and that is design the outcome you, you want, don't drift into it. And this kind of goes back to a lesson I learned after Gail and I had been married for about five years, we went to Hawaii and we didn't have any money. I mean, we barely got there. We got there like on airline points and could barely afford a hotel. And so we, we didn't have a lot of money for entertainment, but the hotel we were staying at had free snorkeling gear. And so we learned to snorkel. And so the second day after we'd been kind of checked out in the, in the swimming pool with a trained instructor, we went out on our own to this lagoon that was adjacent to the hotel and man, it was like five o'clock in the morning. It was absolutely gorgeous. There was nobody there. We started paddling around and we got completely distracted and mesmerized by what we were seeing underwater. Next thing we knew, we woke up and, and it, we'd been caught in a riptide and it felt like, I don't know how far we were out from the shore, but the shore looked, the hotel looked like a postage stamp in the distance. It was like, we, it was scary. Wow. And so we'd been caught in this drift. And, and for me, that's always been like a, a, really important metaphor. And that is that nobody ever drifted to a destination they would have chosen. We only drift to, to bad places. And yet most people, that's the strategy that they employ for life. They're just drifting. They're drifting along in their health. They're drifting along in their marriage. They're drifting along in their work and they expect to have a great outcome. And it just doesn't happen that way because people drift to health crises or a a crisis in a relationship or whatever. The antidote to that, to the drift is design or to be intentional to, to like what Stephen Covey uh, always taught, you know, begin with the end in mind. What is it that you want? What do you want for your marriage? What do you want for your relationship with your kids? When, when you guys turn 65, what do you want your life to look like? The time to be thinking about that is now because The trajectory that you're on is leading you somewhere. The question is, is that somewhere, somewhere you want to go?
0: That is, that's powerful. And I know that there's, uh, this is for me too. I know for those listening, they're like, man, I, I want to plan that out. I don't want to just drift and look up and say, how did I get here? I wish I would have done this. And I know I know you wrote an entire book on this. And I would love if you could just break it down just a little bit for, for the person Who's wanting to take a step forward in this? And they say, "I do want to. I do want to plan and give my life direction. Of course, be prayerful about that. Seek the Lord in that." And I know that you've you've kind of written about creating a life plan. Can you just kind of share a little bit about that? Yeah. Kind of uh, a light version for for those listening.
2: Yeah. Well, it, and it's in my book, Living Forward, that I wrote with my first executive coach, Daniel Harkavy. And so it's broken into three parts. But first. We call this uh, the eulogy exercise. So just sounds a little bit morbid, but fast forward in your mind and imagine that you're at your own funeral and you're listening to the conversation after the funeral. What are people saying about you? Because there's going to be a conversation about what your life meant. You know, your, your spouse, if she survives you. Or if he survives you, they're going to be thinking about, they're going to be talking about what you meant in their life. Your kids are going to be doing the same. Your coworkers the same. What would you like? If you could engineer that now, what would you like for them to say about you? And then just write that down and write it down by category. And so I've done this in all the major categories of my life from, you know, what what would I want? What I want God to say about me, because that's like the first conversation I'm going to have after I pass. (laughs) And I'd yep. like to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you know, but, but that's not going to just happen by accident. So, you know, think through this. So that's the eulogy exercise. Number two, what are your priorities and really be thoughtful about this because there's going to come a time when you're forced to choose. And so for me, it looks like God first. And I think, you know, all, everybody listening to this could agree. That's first. The second one though, is somewhat controversial because I put myself second. And the reason I put myself second is I feel like if I don't take care of me, I'm not going to be in a position to take care of anybody else. If I'm sick, if I'm stressed out, if I'm, you know, mentally on the brink, I'm not going to be in a position to serve anybody else. And I want my life to be a life of service to other people, but that means I've got to take care of myself. And then third, um, what we encourage people to do in the life plan is literally buy life domain or life account, describe exactly what it is that you want for that domain. So for example, like when it comes to your health, and if you were writing that in the present tense and you were writing that for 25 years from now, how would you describe your health? And again, that's not just going to happen. You know, people don't just wake up in a health crisis or they don't just wake up in shape, right? You know, that takes incremental investment, both negative investment and positive investment. So get uh, clear on that and just write a paragraph and we give Lots of examples inside of the book. There are some finished life plans at the end of the book. So it'll give you hopefully some inspiration to do your own.
0: Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation about how to create constraints and boundaries in your life. And maybe even when we talked about overwork, you felt like we pressed on some pain points in your own life and leadership, then you're going to want to check out Michael Hyatt's latest book, When at Work and Succeed at Life. And they actually have a special offer. If you go ahead and order it and you buy the book, and then you go to winandsucceedbook.com slash questions, you can actually get $500 worth of resources with the purchase of the book. So you're going to want to check that out. Now, thank you again for listening. We do hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. If it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review so that other leaders like yourself can find the podcast. We'll see you next time.